You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 251, The Battle of Waxhaws. Now, we last left South Carolina in episode 248, where the greatest American loss of the war led to the capture of the entire Southern Army under Benjamin Lincoln at Charleston. British General Henry Clinton had assembled one of the largest British armies of the war and used a cautious siege strategy to capture the entire American army inside the city. Following the British victory, General Clinton prepared to return to New York City with roughly one-third of his army, leaving the remainder under General Cornwallis to keep control of the southern colonies that were now under British authority, South Carolina, Georgia, and East and West Florida. Cornwallis also had authority to take North Carolina on his own initiative if the opportunity presented itself. General Clinton issued two decrees before leaving South Carolina. One threatened the seizure of the property of any person who continued rebellion against the king. The other granted a full pardon to anyone who peaceably returned to the king's rule, despite whatever past acts of rebellion he might have committed. Although Clinton had imprisoned the Continental Army officers and soldiers that he had captured at Charleston, he permitted the South Carolina militia to return home on parole, with only the promise that they never again take up arms against the king. Clinton had requested Charleston loyalist James Simpson to determine the leanings of South Carolinians, particularly in the backcountry following the fall of Charleston. Simpson divided his fellow colonists into four groups. The first were the rather wealthy, who had seen the problems living under independence and were more than happy to return to royal rule. The second group were people who had no particularly strong political views, who had also become disenchanted by patriot rule, and were also perfectly willing to support the king. The third group were rebels, who had become convinced that the cause was lost, and would now submit to the reality of British rule. The fourth and final group consisted of unrepentant rebels, who would continue the fight. Simpson made these groups, but he really didn't seem to guess at how large any of these groups were, and admitted that he had no real direct communication with anyone in the third or fourth groups. Simpson's conclusion, though, was that peace and order would continue to grow if, and only if, the British continued to provide support via protection with the regular army. Failure to maintain a strong presence in the colony would only embolden the rebels and allow more of them to return to the state of rebellion. Clinton sent three expeditions inland to secure pledges of allegiance and issue pardons. His reports back to London indicate that he thought it was a great success, and the response of the locals was that they would return to royal authority. Clinton's strategy of pardons for past wrongdoing and threats of punishment for future wrongdoing seemed to be working well, 
most South Carolinians were either retiring to their homes or outright joining the British in Loyalist regiments. Now, there were still a few pockets of resistance. Governor John Rutledge and several other top rebel officials had slipped out of Charleston a few weeks before the city's surrender. The governor and his retinue had met up with a small detachment of Continental soldiers under Abraham Buford, who had been on their way to Charleston but had not arrived by the time it fell. Buford commanded a force of a little less than 400 men and two small field cannons. The men at this point were fleeing the state, headed back to North Carolina. Even so, capturing the rebel president would be good public relations and would remove another possible rallying point for the rebels. The escaping rebels had already had a week's head start, so Cornwallis deployed his most aggressive field commander, Colonel Bannister Tarleton, to capture the party. With his typical enthusiasm, Tarleton pushed his cavalry, riding more than a hundred miles in about two days through the summer heat in an attempt to capture the governor. On the afternoon of May 29th, Tarleton's force of about 150 cavalrymen caught up with Buford near the North Carolina border. Tarleton's cavalry was less than half the size of Buford's force, but with customary bluster, Tarleton demanded Buford's immediate surrender and claimed to have the Americans surrounded with a superior force. Buford rejected the offer and put his men into a line of battle. Tarleton quickly formed three columns and charged the Americans. The Continentals held their fire until the cavalry was only ten yards away. They then let loose a devastating volley, but it failed to break the charge. Tarleton's cavalry swept over the Continental lines. During the melee, Tarleton had his horse shot out from under him, but his cavalry continued the attack. Colonel Buford managed to flee the battlefield on his horse, leaving his men to their fates. The hand-to-hand combat quickly turned into a massacre. The stunned Continentals attempted to surrender, but were shot down anyway. British soldiers used swords and bayonets to finish off the wounded who lay on the ground. When the fighting stopped, the British had suffered only five killed and 14 wounded. The Continentals suffered 113 killed and 203 wounded, a roughly 80% casualty rate. The Battle of Waxhaws, also known as Buford's Massacre, became a rallying point for the Patriots. It also sealed Tarleton's reputation as a butcher. Tarleton later claimed that his men went on a killing spree after he fell because they assumed he had been killed and wanted to avenge his death. While that excuse may have been accepted by his superiors, it certainly did not fly with the Patriots, and the term Tarleton's Quarter became a call for no surrender, kill or be killed in battle. Governor Rutledge managed to escape before the battle began and found refuge in North Carolina. From there, he began lobbying the Continental Congress to send a new army to recapture South Carolina and assisted with efforts to raise resources for resistance within the state. Several days after the Waxhaws massacre, General Clinton issued one last proclamation before leaving for New York. As I said, in a prior declaration, Clinton had permitted all rebel militia to return to their homes on parole and accept pardon if they wished. By custom, this meant that parolees were out of the war and could not fight for either side. Clinton's June 2nd proclamation changed all that. With the return of the king's rule, all South Carolinians, including parolees, must swear allegiance to the king 
and rejoin the fight in loyalist militias. Now, in hindsight, this decree has been heavily criticized, but I can see why it made sense to Clinton. Several years earlier, when General Howe captured Philadelphia, he respected the neutrality of most of the local population. The result was that many patriots simply laid low and remained in the area, meaning the British were never really able to secure the land for more than a few miles from their garrisons. By requiring the locals in South Carolina to pick a side, Clinton could be assured exactly who was with him and who was against him. He would not have to tolerate thousands of patriots simply biding their time to strike in a moment of weakness. Most locals would submit to British authority. Those who did not would be dealt with right away. But the impact of the proclamation was that many men who returned home on parole now had a decision to make. Prior to the proclamation, most of these men seemed to be of the opinion that the war was over for them. They could return to their plantations and simply focus on rebuilding their lives. They had a perfect excuse for not joining another Patriot army since they had taken an oath not to do so while they remained on parole. With Clinton's new proclamation, toiling away on one's farm under quiet neutrality was no longer an option. These men had to decide whether they were willing to join a loyalist militia and go to war against their friends and neighbors, or whether they were going to resist British rule. There was no in-between. The result was that many paroled Patriot militia returned to the field and became partisans. Clinton's proclamation coming at the same time most South Carolinians receiving word of the Waxhaws massacre stirred up war sentiment that seemed to be extinct a week earlier. Irregular partisan groups took to the swamps where they would resist British control of the area and continue the struggle. One new leader that emerged was Thomas Sumter, later known as the Gamecock. Sumter had been an old Indian fighter before the war. He was born and raised in Virginia. Along with George Washington and many other leaders, Sumter served in the militia under General Braddock at the beginning of the French and Indian War. Sumter also served under then-Colonel Adam Stephen in the Anglo-Cherokee War of the 1760s. Following the war, Sumter accompanied several Cherokee leaders to London. Debts resulted in this young Virginian serving time in debtor's prison. After that, he settled in South Carolina. There, he became a justice of the peace and ran a country store. After a time, he married the daughter of a large plantation owner, allowing him to become a plantation owner himself. Sumter was an early supporter of the Patriot cause. He helped raise a militia in early 1776, becoming the lieutenant colonel of the regiment and later a colonel. Sumter was leading a regiment of riflemen in Charleston during Clinton's first attempt to take the city in 1776. At that time, Sumter played no active role. As the war raged in New England and then in the Middle Colonies, there really wasn't much to do for a militia officer in South Carolina. Sumter had participated in the efforts to invade Florida, which really never amounted to anything. Sumter only managed to catch a bad case of malaria during the efforts. In 1778, Sumter resigned his commission and returned home to his plantation. When the British invaded Georgia and began sending soldiers into South Carolina in early 1779, Sumter remained at home, instead focusing on raising crops and farm animals to sell to the army. He felt no obligation to return to military command. 
Even after the British Army began its full-scale siege of Charleston, Sumter remained on his plantation. When Colonel William Washington's escape from the Battle of Monk's Corner resulted in his troops marching past Sumter's plantation, Sumter provided the soldiers with food and even a horse for Colonel Washington, but did so only because the army paid top dollar for his supplies. It was only in late May of 1780, after learning that Bannister Tarleton was planning to arrest him, that Sumter put on his uniform and left his plantation. Tarleton's men, frustrated at not finding it at home, looted and burned his plantation. But to do anything, Sumter first had to raise an army. He stayed ahead of British patrols, riding to find other men, many of whom had served under him in the militia regiment that had been disbanded a few years earlier. General Clinton's proclamation that required the men of South Carolina either to join Tory regiments or be branded traitors forced many men to join these guerrilla units like the one Sumter was raising. Since men could not remain neutral, they would join the Patriots. Sumter began a guerrilla campaign. His men would hide in swamps. They would attack isolated British units or outposts when the opportunity arose. They would harass and attack any loyalist plantations they could target. Within weeks of fleeing his plantation, the men elected Sumter as their leader and declared him to be a brigadier general in the South Carolina Patriot Militia. Another leader who rose to the occasion was Colonel Francis Marion, later known as the Swamp Fox. Marion was born in South Carolina and lived on his family's plantation. The most interesting story from his youth was the time a 16-year-old Marion boarded a ship for the West Indies. His ship crashed into a whale and sank. Marion spent days in a lifeboat where several members of the crew died for lack of water. After about a week in the lifeboat, another ship rescued them, and he returned home. Since South Carolina really didn't play much of a role in the French and Indian War, Marion lived the quiet life of a planter. Like all white men in South Carolina, Marion served in the militia, but he did not seek active duty. When the Anglo-Cherokee War began, Lieutenant Marion, serving in Colonel William Moultrie's regiment, did see some action. He was a witness to some of the brutality that attended the war with the Cherokee, and apparently came away from it with a profound distaste for military service. So, he returned to the life of a farmer, growing his small plantation over time, largely avoiding any active role in politics. But in 1774, he was elected to attend South Carolina's first provincial congress, which was a political challenge to British colonial authority. When South Carolina established its Patriot Militia in 1775, Marion received a commission as a captain, again serving in a regiment commanded by Colonel William Moultrie. In September, Captain Marion was part of a force that captured Fort Johnson in Charleston Harbor. A few months later, Marion was part of the 1776 defense of Fort Sullivan against the British attack led by General Clinton. Marion's conspicuous efforts that day in defense of the fort led to a commission as a lieutenant colonel in the Continental Army. Marion commanded the 2nd Regiment stationed at Charleston. He got a reputation as a no-nonsense officer who was quick to punish infractions. More than a quarter of his regiment was subject to lashings for various violations during his leadership. Colonel Marion was among the officers who argued with civilian leadership who wanted to surrender Charleston to a British raiding party in 1779. 
Colonel Marion led his regiment into combat at the failed siege of Savannah. He led his men in a charge that saw a nearly 50% casualty rate. After the battle, the 2nd Regiment was stationed about halfway between Charleston and Savannah, but it was not until January of 1780, after the British attack on Charleston became clear, that Marion returned to the city. It's likely Marion would have been taken prisoner along with the rest of the Continental Army under General Lincoln, but for an accident. Marion attended an officer's party on March 19th. For some reason, during the party, he jumped out of a second-story window and broke his ankle. A few weeks later, as the British siege tightened, General Lincoln ordered all officers and men who were unfit for duty to leave the city in order to conserve food and other resources. So, Marion left for home only a few days before the British sealed off most of the escape routes around Charleston. As a result, Marion was one of the few Continental officers in South Carolina who escaped capture at Charleston. But he could no longer recuperate from his injury at his plantation as he became a wanted man under the new British authority. He fled into the swamps to avoid capture by British patrols and continued to wait for his ankle to heal. Now, Despite a few rebels hiding in the swamps, from the British perspective, South Carolina had fallen. Capturing the army under Lincoln in Charleston seemed to crush the resistance in the state. The British set about the task of raising Loyalist regiments to control the recaptured colony and crush any remaining signs of resistance. Bannister Tarleton is often held up as an example of brutality used to reassert British control. But Tarleton was far from the only one who believed that harsh treatment was the only way to put down a rebellion. Another such officer was Christian Huck. Before the war, Huck had immigrated to Philadelphia from a German state. In his new home, he studied law and became an attorney. When the war came, Huck was decidedly a loyalist. But like many loyalists in Philadelphia, he kept quiet about it to avoid attack by patriot mobs. When the British took control of the city in late 1777, Huck gladly assisted the army. After the British evacuation back to New York in 1778, Pennsylvania added Huck's name to a list of traitors who had actively assisted the British during the occupation. The state confiscated his property and threatened to punish him as a traitor if caught. Huck had seen that his activities during the occupation would not sit well and had already left the city. In June 1778, he received a commission as a captain in a German-speaking Loyalist regiment in New York. Captain Huck's regiment traveled south with Clinton's army to take Charleston. His Loyalist infantry fought under Colonel Tarleton at Waxhaws. Huck got a reputation as a tough fighter and a fervent Loyalist who had no sympathy for traitors to the crown. After Waxhaws, Captain Huck operated independently in the backcountry. His orders were to recruit more Loyalist soldiers. Huck developed a reputation for a foul mouth and a violent temper one that did not tolerate anyone who refused to provide unequivocal support to British authority. Several accounts have him threatening to kill uncooperative civilians as he attempted to capture fleeing rebels. He and his soldiers burned numerous plantations and other property belonging to suspected patriots. One account said that his men shot and killed a boy who was just sitting by the road reading the Bible. I'm sure there's more to the story than that, but clearly these were soldiers who fought for keeps. 
In July, Huck led a force of about 120 men who encamped on the Williamson Plantation in York County. They captured five patriots there who were hiding in the corn crib. The loyalists camped around the plantation house for the night. One of their targets while they were there was Colonel William Bratton, a local patriot militia officer. Huck had personally threatened to kill Bratton's wife, Martha, in an attempt to get her to give up her husband's location. Martha managed to get a slave to send a message to her husband who was camped nearby. Bratton marched with a force of about 200 South Carolina militia and attacked the Loyalists at the Williamson Plantation at dawn on July 12th. The battle was over in a matter of minutes, as the surprised Loyalists mostly fled into the woods. The attackers shot Captain Huck in the head, killing him as he attempted to mount his horse. Now, the problem for the British in treating the Patriots so brutally is that it often resulted in receiving similar treatment from the enemy when the tables were turned. The militia chased down the Loyalists and took out their wrath on those they found. The Loyalists under Huck suffered 85% casualties that day, while the Americans suffered only one killed and one wounded. Huck's defeat was one example of many that British pacification of South Carolina was far from over, that there were men still ready to fight, and that their numbers would seem to grow over time. The next week, we're going to head to London, where the Yorkshire Association challenges the King's rule and the Gordon riots burn London. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now They even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks as always to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and Mike Hager, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters Kurt Avard and Knox Press. Check out upcoming releases, including new one on Arthur Sinclair at knoxpress.com. Thanks also to Ken Canistry, Wade Borman, and Roman Colazzo for one-time gifts. If you would like to make a one-time gift via PayPal or Venmo, please find my links on my website at amrevpodcast.com. Want everyone to know that I'm still planning to go to History Camp Boston on August 13th. 
The event is sold out, so it's too late if you don't already have tickets. You can, however, still sign up for the online History Camp America that's taking place on November 5th. Go to historycamp.org for more details and use the code AMREV22 for a discount on your tickets. The events we covered this week really set the tone for the Southern Campaign. In the North, British military leaders seemed to tolerate the bulk of the population remaining neutral civilians. As a result, the Patriots were able to keep a low profile amidst the British military occupation and to strike whenever there was a moment of weakness. General Clinton tried to break that cycle in South Carolina by mandating colonists join Loyalist militias and actively fight for the king, or else be branded as traitors and suffer the consequences. This idea that if you are not completely with us, you are against us, led to deep divisions within the southern colonies, and to some really brutal colonist-on-colonist fighting that we never saw on such a large scale anywhere else. We do see some brutality in upstate New York, but that was among a much smaller population. It's always dangerous to engage in what-if alternative histories. What if Clinton had allowed parolees to remain at home for the rest of the war? Would that have prevented this larger resistance? We really don't know. All we know is that, in hindsight, the strategy that Clinton did choose failed. Clinton couldn't know that. He only knew that allowing neutrals certainly did not work in the occupation of Philadelphia, so trying something different after taking Charleston probably made sense. The Waxhaws massacre also played a role in riling up patriot sentiment, but I suspect there would always be some outrageous behavior that the patriots would use to drum up anti-British sentiment. The result, however, was this take-no-prisoners attitude that led to some really brutal killing on both sides. I also took some time to introduce Thomas Sumter, the Gamecock, and Francis Marion, the Swamp Fox, as two local military leaders who are going to play a larger role in the resistance to British occupation. Marion holds a special place in my heart, if only because I happened to read a biography of him when I was about eight years old. So, personally, talking about him is almost like revisiting a childhood friend. So, you will indulge me for picking a Francis Marion biography as my book recommendation this week. For someone who played a relatively tangential role in the war, there are a great many Marion biographies. I suppose his nickname, the Swamp Fox, made Marion a great topic for many hero-type biographies, particularly target at young readers which is why I suppose I read about him when I was eight. There are a great many more serious and full-length biographies as well. My recommendation this week is a relatively recent one by John Aller called The Swamp Fox, How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution. This was published in 2016. It's almost 400 pages, but only about 250 of the pages tell a story. The rest is an extensive notes and index. So, lots of great endnotes if you are like me and want to get into that sort of thing, but it also means the narrative itself is relatively short. Even so, I think the book gives good coverage of the man, even if there is nothing particularly groundbreaking about this biography that others haven't covered. The author, John Aller, has written a number of biographies, but this is his only one from the Revolutionary War era. Uh, There's also Kindle and audiobook versions of this book, as well as a free online copy that you can read on archive.org. 
Of course, because the book is still under copyright, you can only read it online, not download it. Even so, this is a great way to take a look and see if it's worth buying a copy. For my online recommendation, I'm going to recommend yet another Marion biography. In this case, The Life of General Francis Marion by Mason Weems and Peter Horry. Now, I didn't pick this one because it's particularly detailed or accurate. Rather, it's because the author, Weems, has a bit of a historical reputation himself. Parson Reems co-wrote this biography shortly after Marion's death. Weems, you may know, wrote an earlier biography about George Washington, where he first published the story about Washington chopping down a cherry tree as a child. From that and many other examples, we know that Weems tends to focus on telling a good story rather than necessarily staying true to verified facts. Weems wrote a number of biographies of early American leaders. That, of course, is his all-time family classic good book, God's Revenge Against Adultery. But leaving that book aside, Weems's focus on early American heroes made him an intriguing figure himself. His co-author, Peter Horry, was a colonel in the South Carolina militia and actually served under Marion after Marion organized his regiments following the fall of Charleston. So Horry is definitely a great source for a Marion biography, having known the colonel and fought alongside him through most of the important years of the war. So, if you are interested, check out this Francis Marion biography on archive.org. The version I've linked to is a reprint from the 1880s, but it's pretty true to the original. My question this week asks, how long did it usually take for mail to go from Philadelphia to Boston in 1776? Well, the year 1776 was a difficult one for mail. Congress had agreed to establish a postal service in 1775, Setting up routes and riders, especially with a war starting at the same time, was a difficult and inconsistent process to deliver mail. The fastest way to travel any real distance at that time was by ship. In early 1776, the British Army occupied Boston, and Philadelphia was the seat of the Continental Congress. Getting correspondence across enemy lines posed special challenges. Normal direct delivery via ship would have been almost impossible. Even after the British evacuated Boston, Navy ships off the coast interfered with shipping, making sailing a ship up the coast a risky venture. So while a good ship with favorable winds carrying mail might get to Boston from Philadelphia in about three or four days, that speed would be highly unusual and fraught with danger. There just weren't that many ships making that run. So, If there was mail being delivered, it would probably be delivered overland via horseback. Most important messages would be sent by private couriers, not general mail. Many people entrusted notes to friends who were traveling to another town. A rider on horseback who was really pushing himself might make it the distance between Philadelphia and Boston in about a week, assuming good weather. Normal deliveries via wagon would probably take more like two to four weeks, or much longer, as was often the case, because deliveries got slowed up for any number of reasons. Therefore, most communications between Philadelphia and Boston at this time would normally be expected to take many weeks. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please reach out to me via email or on Twitter, Facebook, or Quora. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another 
American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.